0: Letter sixty six, part one of the History of Lady Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The History of Lady Barton by Elizabeth Griffith. Letter sixty six, part one. Miss Cleveland to Lady Barton. Once more, my sister, I return to the sad task of relating Maria's woes. I have not ventured to make any comment on her story, nor do I mean to attempt it. My Louisa can reason far better than I, and deduce effects from their causes. The agitation of my spirits had reduced my mind to a state of the lowest weakness. I wept the whole night through, and when my mother came to my bedside in the morning, I was scarce able to answer her tender inquiries after my health. She told me that Mr. W. was perfectly well acquainted with my former attachment to Captain L., though he had never given the most distant hint of it before. She suspected Matilda for having supplied him with this information, that by some chance he had heard of his being at Bath, and came post from London directly but when he arrived at his house and heard that I was at the rooms, he flew into the most violent passion and said everything against me that rage and mistake could dictate. My poor mother thought to qualify his fury by assuring him that this was the first night I had gone into the room since his absence. Perhaps this might have confirmed his suspicion, as it looked the more like an assignation. He hurried on his clothes, "'Flew immediately to the assembly, and happened unluckily, it seems, "'just to enter the door as Captain L. had walked up to the place where I sat. "'He construed everything against me, both appearances and surmises, "'trifles light as air, etc. "'In fine I was condemned, without further examination. "'He declared his full determination not to live with me any longer, "'and commanded me to set out immediately for his house in Devonshire, he would take care that I should not expose myself or dishonour him any more for the future. Surely never was reprieve more welcome to a sentenced wretch than the latter part of this discourse to me. I had languished for solitude before my husband's error had rendered me infamous, and earnestly wished to fly from society before I had reason to apprehend that I should be abandoned by the world. But in my present situation, both of mind and circumstance, the idea of retirement, "'nay, absolute seclusion from the whole universe, except my mother, "'was doubly dear to my sad heart. "'I started up with all the alacrity of health and cheerfulness, "'and cried, "'I am ready to obey Mr. W. "'Let us be gone this moment. "'Do not delay, my dearest mother, "'but let us fly forever from this hated place, "'this scene of all my misery.' "'She answered with a sigh, "'Your husband has refused to let me go with you.' or be a witness of the treatment which you are too likely to receive under his tyranny. I shall behold you or your miseries no more, but they will prey forever on my heart, for I have caused them all. Your filial duty more than your own ambition was the sole motive which has rendered you a victim to this unequal match. I respected the opinions of the world more than the philosophy of nature, and the sin of the parent is now severely visited on the unoffending child." we wept in each other's bosom. The thought of being separated from this virtuous, this tender parent, quite overpowered me, and I sunk almost senseless upon my pillow. I knew that she had not now even the means of subsistence when torn from me, and I had not the least reason to expect that Mr. W. would have generosity or humanity sufficient to relieve her distress or assuage her grief. During the few days I remained at Bath after this event, I never stirred out of my bedchamber, nor saw any creature except my dear mother and a maid-servant, who had been hired upon this occasion to watch rather than attend me, and was appointed, as one may well suppose, to be a spy upon all my actions during my exilement in Devonshire. The only favourable circumstance that I remember in this unhappy situation was that Mr. W, for I will no longer style him husband, no more distressed me with his loathsome presence or his foul reproaches, while I continued under his roof. Matilda never once came near me all this while, but this was not the first instance that gave me reason to suspect her of insincerity and double-dealing. I feared she had been the sole cause of the breach between Captain L. and me, and this idea not only inspired me with my former passion for him, but added a tenderness and compassion to my sentiments that rendered me infinitely more wretched than I was before the brutality of Mr. W. still further strengthened my affections towards him, and the state of divorce to which his violence had now reduced me, dissolved that solemn and honourable tie which would otherwise have restrained the wanderings of my heart, and ever preserved my duty faithful to him. It would be impossible to describe the pangs I felt when the hour arrived in which I was to be torn from a fond mother's converse. She was all the world to me, "'at least she was all that I then thought truly loved me in the world. "'We parted, and at her most earnest entreaty "'I promised to write to Mr. W. "'as soon as my mind should be sufficiently composed, "'and to enter into a proper vindication "'of my hitherto irreproachable conduct. "'More dead than alive, "'my Duenna and I arrived at my destined prison. "'The house was old, large, and gloomy, "'extremely out of repair, "'the furniture as antique as the building.' "'which was situated on a bleak and barren shore opposite the Irish coast. "'For the first ten or twelve days that I passed in this dismal mansion, "'I was delighted with the stillness and solitude that surrounded me. "'The family was composed of only three maids and an old gardener, "'and I have sometimes passed a dozen hours without hearing any sound "'except the roaring of the sea, the croaking of the ravens, or howling of a mastiff. "'But when the agitation of my mind began a little to subside, I grew sensible to the horrors of my situation, and would have preferred a dungeon with any human creature I could converse with to the liberty of stalking through an uninhabited range of chambers in silence and solitude. Monasteries afford society, and jails are not destitute of companions, which are a solace even in misery. But here I was both wretched and alone. I used often to consider myself as a delinquent entombed alive, "'secluded from the universe, "'and only conscious of existence "'from continued regret. "'I sought for amusement in books, "'and found none that were capable "'of affording me any. "'The few volumes that I met with "'were meant to inspire devotion, "'but as they were written on fanatical principles, "'they were either so ridiculously absurd "'as to create disgust, "'or so extremely rigid as to induce despair. "'In conformity to my promise, "'I had written to Mr. W., but received no answer, and what was infinitely more grievous to me, I had not the happiness of hearing once from my mother, or any one else, though eight months had lagged with leaden steps along since the first day of my confinement. When the weather permitted, I sometimes walked by the seaside, and have frequently poured forth my sorrows to the deaf, unpitying waves. Often, my Edward, have I sighed out your name, and sent forth ardent prayers for your return, To comfort and support our hapless mother. Yet, I will own that the loved sound of L still oftener passed my lips. Was this a crime? My affections were thrown back upon my hands, and this, methought, gave me a right to transfer them. In this situation, I had remained in my exile for a tedious interval, when one fine evening, having indulged my reveries by the seaside longer than usual, The twilight coming on warned me of returning home, when I saw two men, at a small distance, walking slowly behind me. A sight so unusual, joined to an apprehension that they might have overheard my soliloquy, put my spirits into a flutter, though from their pace and manner they did not seem as if they intended to pursue me. I was seized with a universal tremor. My limbs could scarce support me, and I could march but slowly on before i was able to recover myself and mend my speed one of the persons came up to me while the other retired as if for fear of alarming me i did not venture even to look at him and began to mend my pace but flight was useless when his well-known voice uttered these words oh fear no injury from me my dear deceived unhappy and still adored maria surprise terror hope, fear, love, anger, grief, and joy. In short, every passion of the human heart, hatred alone excepted rushed through my mind, and totally deprived me of the power of utterance, while he, need I write his name, taking advantage of my silence, proceeded thus. I have long sought this opportunity of speaking to you, but my tenderness, my delicacy, and respect for the only woman I ever did or can love, have prevented my attempting it hitherto in any way that might reflect upon the character of Mr. W.'s wife, and by that means countenance and justify the calumny with which he has aspersed your reputation. The lucky moment I have so long watched for in private has at length arrived, and if you ever loved me, my Maria, you will not now refuse to hear me for a moment while I tell you that you have been most cruelly deceived. "'I know it, sir,' I replied. "'You need not now inform me of your own perfidy,' "'To you alone I owe the miseries I suffer, "'and Mr. W. himself is innocent when compared with you. "'Then let me go this moment, "'for however my duty to him may have been dissolved by his unkindness, "'that which I owe myself forbids my ever-holding converse with you more.' "'I attempted to break from him, but he held me fast, "'and vowed most solemnly that he would never quit me "'unless I promised to meet him the next evening on the beach, "'and allow himself to exculpate himself.' of the infidelity I charged him with, and which he then denied with the strongest asseverations, adding that Matilda had betrayed us both and was the vilest being upon earth. Then promised, if I would but hear him once, he would never importune me more. Almost distracted with contending passions, and terrified lest his imprudence might involve me in farther difficulties, I promised to comply with his request, provided he would leave me on the instant AS I HEARD THE SOUND OF VOICES, WHICH I KNEW TO BE THE SERVANTS COMING IN QUEST OF ME, AS THEY MUST NECESSARILY BE ALARMED AT MY UNUSUAL STAY. HE PRESSED MY HAND TO HIS LIPS, AND WITHDREW DIRECTLY. WITH TREMBLING STEPS I PURSUED MY WAY HOMEWARDS, AND MET MY MAID WITH THE GARDENER COMING IN SEARCH OF ME. THE AGITATION OF MY MIND WAS TOO VISIBLE IN MY countenance TO PASS UNNOTICED, AND THEY NATURALLY INQUIRED IF I HAD MET WITH ANY FRIGHT OR ACCIDENT. I told them that the night had fallen upon me sooner than I had expected it, that I had been then alarmed at the loneliness of my situation, and the haste I was obliged to make homewards had hurried my spirits a little. I desired a glass of water, and pretended to retire to rest. As soon as I was left alone, I began to reflect upon the extraordinariness of my adventure with Captain L upon the Strand, and on my own weakness in having consented again to meet a person who had despised and rejected me with the utmost insolence and inhumanity it was however still easier to account for my conduct on this occasion than for his passion self-love and curiosity all conspired to render me desirous of finding a clue to that labyrinth in which i was involved but wherefore should he seek to distress me farther or why pursue a wretch who already entirely secluded from the world had neither inclination or power to disturb his happiness or oppose his views in any scheme of life. The hints he had dropped about Matilda puzzled me still farther. Was she not the companion of my youth, the friend of my heart, the confidant of all my joys and sorrows? Some instances of her levity and unkindness I did indeed recollect. But could she betray me? Impossible! Nature could not produce so vile a monster. Or grant there could be such a fiend clothed in a female form— Yet still, why unprovoked should she exert her malice against me, who never had offended her, without a view to her own interests or advantage? And how could she be profited by my destruction? The more I considered what Captain L. had said on this last subject, the less credit it gained with me, and I persuaded myself that he had only named Matilda as a lure to my curiosity. The night passed away insensibly— "'without my being able either to form any rational conjecture "'with regard to the motives of his behaviour "'or any resolution relative to my own. "'A thousand times I determined not to keep my appointment with him, "'and as often changed my resolves. "'It would be endless to repeat the numberless arguments "'for and against this meeting "'that my love and reason suggested "'and set in opposition to each other. "'At length my evil genius prevailed,' and determined me for once to hear what Captain L. could say. About six o'clock in the morning I lay down on my bed in order to make my maid believe that I had slept in it as usual. I had lain but a short time when I found my harassed mind inclined to rest and I fell into a slumber, out of which I was soon awakened by a dream, which affected my mind as much as a vision would have done my senses. I thought that my father stood before me, and the same sickly and emaciated appearance with which that true divine conferred his last blessing on me. I threw myself on my knees, and endeavoured to embrace his, but with his face averse he flitted fast away. I rose and pursued him to the brink of a precipice, when he turned quick upon me, caught me up in his arms, and plunged with me directly into the gulf. I awakened with a loud scream, thought I was still falling, and was for some time in doubt whether it was the reverie of a disturbed brain or an apparition that had occurred to me, and only determined it to have been the former by finding myself in the same place I had laid down to rest. I rose up and walked about the room till I had exhausted my strength, endeavouring to shake off the kind of horror which had taken possession of my mind and body from this shocking dream, but it clung still about me, like a wintry cloud, and chilled my nerves to numbness. At length, towards evening, I began to recover myself again. I am not superstitious. Besides, what crime had I ever committed that might conjure up spectres from the grave? My life had been innocent, though unhappy, and my mind continued pure, though injured and provoked. The reflections which this incident stirred up in my thoughts, more particularly at this time with regard to my dear father's goodness and virtue, served principally to compose my spirits to peace. He was indeed a perfect Christian, both in faith and works. His character and conversation were of a piece. His example was precept. He urged no borrowed morals, but preached the very practice of his life. His doctrines were strict, yet indulgent, charitable, though severe. His austerity was only in his maxims and his mind, his mildness in his censures and his heart. These pious thoughts wrought me up to an enthusiasm of devotion. I fell on my knees to thank heaven for having been derived from two such pure sources as my father and mother, and prayed most fervently that I might never be guilty of any thought or deed which should render me unworthy of such faultless originals. As the hour approached when I was to meet Captain L., the terrors of my mind increased. Yet I found myself so strongly impelled, from the motives already mentioned, joined to a curiosity to know where the blame lay between Matilda and him— "'that I could not resist the temptation of hazarding the interview. "'I went softly down the back stairs, "'which led from a closet within my apartment, "'and found my way out, unseen by any of the family. "'The agitation of my spirits was so violent "'that I scarce knew what I did. "'I sometimes ran towards the shore "'as if I had been pursued by wild beasts, "'then stopped and stood motionless, "'as if my faculties had ceased.' At length I perceived Captain L. at some distance. He flew to me and caught me in his arms. I burst into a passion of tears and was incapable of utterance. As soon as I could recover my speech, I assumed all the dignity of resentment, and told him that he was no longer to consider me as the weak, tender Maria S., but as an injured and offended judge, who came to hear the poor defense which he could make, for having so ungenerously wronged and so cruelly injured her again he pressed me to his bosom and exclaimed, "'Oh, could I but repair the wrongs you have suffered? As easily as I can prove I never was the author of them. My loved Maria should be mine and happy, and it shall still be so. Victims of artifice and fraud, shall we continue to be wretched because Matilda and your husband have concurred to render us so?' "'That fatal name of husband,' I replied, "'has fixed an everlasting bar between happiness and me. But were there no such person in the world, You cannot think of me so meanly to suppose that I would condescend to accept of one who had so rejected and despised me. No blandishments, no arts can ever soothe my tortured mind into forgetfulness of your contempt. He then begged that I would hear him justify himself, and began by informing me that about a year before my arrival at Bath, he had gone there, as most young people do, in quest of amusement, that he happened to lodge in the same house with Matilda and her husband who both sought and cultivated his acquaintance. And as he had no particular attachment to any other persons there, he devoted himself entirely to them, was of all their parties and never absent from them. He confessed that he liked Matilda better than any woman then at Bath, and that he began to flatter himself he was not disagreeable to her. From the levity of her manners, he had reason to believe she was not over-strict in her morals, and on her husband's being obliged to go to London for a few days, she convinced him that he had not been mistaken. Their guilty commerce lasted but a short time. It began without passion, and of course terminated in indifference, at least on his side. He quitted Bath without any design of ever returning, though Matilda and her husband had taken a house, and determined to fix their residence there. Some months after he was attacked with a violent bilious complaint, and ordered to Bath by his physicians, and was just recovering from this disorder, "'when my mother and I happened to bend our course thither. "'What passed between us on our first acquaintance "'I have already told you, "'except Matilda's machinations to break off our intercourse "'and recall him to his former attachment. "'When she found her arts were unsuccessful, "'she changed her battery "'and pretended to conceive a particular friendship for me "'and became our mutual confidant. "'But at the same time, from her superior regard for Captain L, "'used often to remonstrate to him how much his family would be offended at his marrying a girl without rank or fortune but all these arts and insinuations he vowed had not the least manner of effect upon his mind or heart his passion was too firmly founded on admiration and esteem to be so easily shaken and he declared that at the sad moment of our parting his whole affections and sole purpose in life were pointed towards our mutual happiness and honour together he confessed however that during the unlucky interval of absence the hints and representations of matilda had wrought by degrees the malicious effect intended by them for she had framed a novel against me with so much address and ingenuity so guarded at all points that each part of it seemed to vouch the truth of the rest even the indiscretion of my having been led into play by her own artifice she most wickedly represented to him as a vice of mine and reported the circumstances of my debt to mr w which she also exaggerated with such reflections as placed me in the shocking light of a girl who was resolved to make the most of her youth and beauty, without any further regard to morals or character. In fine, he acknowledged that the plausible manner in which she gave him these advices from time to time, with the tender and compassionate expressions she affected now and then to let drop upon the unhappiness of my conduct, had at length so entirely injured me in his esteem that it occasioned his writing me the letter before mentioned. "'when he was going to sail for America. "'What a recital was this for me to listen to, "'in my then unfortunate circumstances. "'His justification but increased my misery. "'I had never imagined there was so much vileness in human nature "'as the base Matilda appeared now to be capable of, "'and was shocked to think that I was of the same species "'with such a monster in wickedness. "'I wept, we both of us wept, "'while he thus went on with his story.' When I quitted Europe, continued he, the poison of Matilda's correspondence ceased its operations. My passion and reflection had liberty to exert themselves, and I began to doubt the authenticity of the extraordinary accounts I had received about you. Your bloom and beauty presented themselves to my fond imagination in the warmest colors. Your candor, innocence, and ingenuousness of manners occurred then strongly to my mind. Could such a character become so quickly abandoned, said I to my heart, it must be unnatural, and what is contrary to nature must be improbable at least, if not impossible. Thus did I often plead your cause, my ever-loved Maria, against the foul charges of your enemy, whom I unhappily, however, did not look upon then in that light, but merely as an unfortunate woman, who, having been guilty of vice herself, was, as too generally is the case, apt to construe every action of others into the worst sense that the appearance or circumstances of it can bear. Upon this fair discussion of the point, I wrote once more to Matilda, expressing my doubts, not of her sincerity, but about her misapprehensions only of your conduct, said that general charges, suspicions, and hearsays were but insufficient evidences where so choice a jewel as character was at stake, and called upon her for some facts of more public notoriety to support her slanders. As all correspondence had been broken off between you and me, said he, she ventured now to speak out more boldly, and without the least equivocation in her terms assured me that you lived publicly with Mr. W., and privately intrigued with Sir James D., that the extravagance of your dress, pleasures, and other expenses was supported between them, that you had kept them both attached to you by raising a spirit of rivalship between them, and used also to render each of the gallants jealous in their turns by alarming them with me.' With the letter she wrote, as she said by your desire, from Bristol, she sent me another, in which she told me that you had at length brought Mr. W. to consent to marry you, on account of your being with child, and that the letter was framed with a view either of duping me into a marriage, which she believed you would prefer, or of paying Mr. W. the compliment of sacrificing me to him, if I should return a favourable answer. There is no describing the height of resentment to which I was affected upon this occasion— and I should have replied to the proposal in the most outrageous terms imaginable, if my love and fondness for you, which still remained, though my esteem was flown, had not restrained my hand, and dictated those cool but not violent lines I sent her in answer. He told me that, when he returned to England upon his father's illness, he felt himself impelled by a strong desire of seeking some proper opportunity of reproaching me for my infidelity, and of covering me with the utmost confusion— by expressing the detestation and contempt that even a man and a soldier was capable of conceiving at the breach of honour or virtue in a woman that he loved. He mentioned this purpose, he said, in a letter to Matilda, and she most strenuously opposed it. She told him that such a sentiment was no good sign of a recovery from his infatuated passion, for she feared much that all the malice of his heart was love. That this would be but affording me the triumph of thinking him still my slave— and might put it in my power to involve him perhaps in a duel with Mr. W., whom she represented as extremely jealous, from very conscious reasons, if, as it was more than probable, I should be willing to exchange my wedding garment for a widow's weed. However, all these arguments not being sufficient to deter him from coming to Bath, he wrote her word that he would be there on such a day, and has had reason to suppose since that she must have advised Mr. W. of this particular— by his coming so critically from London on the same day, and meeting him in the rooms that fatal night which I have before mentioned to you. I need not now, my dear brother, recapitulate what passed in consequence of this vile woman's malice. You have hitherto seen me the innocent victim of her cruelty. Too happy should I now deem myself had I still remained so. My fainting in the rooms, at the sight of Captain L., awakened his former tenderness for me, and the inhumanity with which Mr. W. treated me on that occasion, for the surgeon had made the story public, seemed to demand his pity for a wretch doomed to be punished for an involuntary and guiltless act. He would have gone in person the next morning to Mr. W. in order to have justified my character, as far as it related to the scandal then cast upon it with regard to him, but was restrained from the attempt by Matilda's saying that this would only make the matter worse in all probability." that the interfering between man and wife was a dangerous measure in any person whatsoever but that the lover the very cause of the contention must certainly be the most improper mediator in their reconcilement that could possibly be imagined she therefore advised him to wait with patience till passion on the husband's part might become calm enough to listen to reason and that resentment peculiarly natural to a wife suspected in the wrong place this was her expression "'should have somewhat subsided, "'and then promised him to undertake the interposition herself "'at the proper crisis, "'probably to better effect than it could be engaged in, "'even by her, during the present violence of the parties. "'He stayed at Bath while I remained there, "'and suffered an anxiety which increased more and more every day, "'as by mixing with the company at the rooms, "'but more particularly with the residents of the place, "'among whom my late adventure was publicly talked of, "'he heard every one take my part,' and vindicate my innocence, from their former knowledge and general good opinion of my character and conduct, ever since I had first become an inhabitant of that city. In fine, he heard it agreed upon, on all sides, that Mr. W. could have no other foundation for his jealousy of me, except that sort of suspicion which is naturally apt to arise from too great a disparity in years, especially in the breast of a man who had had but little acquaintance with any women, except those of profligate character." These fair reports in my favor, he said, began soon to convince him of Matilda's treachery, and he reproached her with it warmly one day, when, with the greatest sang-froid imaginable, she answered him in these very words, "'There is no such thing as elemocinary wisdom in this life. Let philosophers and pedagogues say what they will. Experience must be purchased at our own proper cost, and not at the expense of others.' from this warning you will be taught sufficient sense to know for the future, that to make a woman the confidant of her rival is appointing a wolf to be the shepherd of a lamb. I forget whether this maxim be taken notice of in Ovid's Art of Love. If not, his precepts are imperfect. He assured me that, on this reply, his sight and reason forsook him for a time, and only returned to enable him to view the hag, as she then appeared to him, with the greater horror, "'and to possess him with a rage that fell but little short of madness. "'What would I have given at that instant?' cried he out, "'to have exchanged her sex into a dozen armed men.' "'And then concluded the sentence with this expression, "'But I could not exert such resentment against her as she deserved, "'because she was in my power.' "'He did everything he could to find out the place of my banishment, "'but could not discover it. "'He did not know of my being moved from Bath till after I had been sent away.' or he would have employed some trusty person or other to have watched me to the place of my destination. The surmises were various upon this occasion. Some said I was to be carried over to France and forced into a convent, some that I was to be locked up in Mr. W.'s house in London, and others that I was to be betrayed into a private madhouse and confined there for life. During the uncertainty of all these several reports, Captain L. received an account of his father's illness and immediately repaired to london to attend on him his filial duty claimed his first regard and the exercise of that virtue served to restrain his impatience and balance his anxiety on my account for several months while sir richard l lingered before his death captain l now becomes sir thomas l with a large patrimony being at length released from any further restraint upon his time and actions "'began to turn his whole thoughts towards the unhappiness of my situation, "'and considered himself bound, not as a knight-errant merely, "'but as a man of honour, to rescue me from that distress "'which he had been the innocent cause of, through the treachery of one person, "'and the too hasty sentence and unwarrantable severity of another. "'He returned immediately to Bath, in order to get what information he could about me, "'and hearing that my dear mother had retired to a village in Flintshire, took the resolution of going to wait upon her there. As soon as he had informed her who he was, she began to reproach him in the manner it was natural for her to have done, from the circumstances of his conduct towards me, in the light it had hitherto appeared to her. But when he had disclosed the scene of villainy and deceit to which he had likewise fallen a victim, her affections softened, and she could not help looking upon him then as a third sufferer in our complicated misfortune." he contrived artfully to draw from her the secret of my abode, but without suffering the least hint to escape him of any purpose to seek me there. Then, taking her hand and kneeling before her, vowed an attachment to me during life, said he would ever pay her the respect and duty of a son-in-law, attending till death or some more speedy vengeance might remove Mr. W. out of the way of his happiness, and offered her an affluent support out of his fortune, becoming the honorable connection which he had then declared between them. My dear unhappy mother returned him the most grateful thanks for the kindness and generosity of his offer, but her spirit and delicacy made her decline the acceptance of it. She confessed herself alarmed even at his visit, and urged him to depart instantly, without suffering himself to be known, lest this circumstance, though accidental and innocent in itself, might possibly, in the train of our misfortunes, "'happened to be made an additional article of suspicion against us all. "'She plained the distress and difficulty of our situations. "'They embraced, and he retired immediately out of the town. "'On his route to Devonshire, Bath lay in his way, "'where he happened to meet with Captain R., "'who had been an officer in the same corps with him in America. "'There had always subsisted a particular intimacy between them, "'and as friendship is apt to inspire a confidence, "'and that his heart was full,' he imparted the whole secret of our loves and disappointments to him. He also informed him at the same time of his resolve to go and conceal himself somewhere near the place of my retirement, till he might meet with a favourable opportunity, without hazard to my reputation, of seeing me even for a minute, in order to vindicate himself from the unjust opinion I must necessarily have conceived of his infidelity and baseness, declaring also that he thought it a duty incumbent on him to watch over my destiny— and at the expense of his fortune, and the sacrifice of his life, to defend me from any injury or violence that might ever be attempted against me. Captain R. approved his motives, and commended his purpose, and said that as it was a service of danger, he had a right to claim the privilege of a friend and a comrade in sharing it with him. Sir Thomas readily accepted of his company, and they set out the next morning for Hartland, which is within a mile of the castle where I resided.' they were attended only by two servants and a couple of pointers, on pretense of going into that country merely as unconnected, idle, travelling sportsmen. Sir Thomas did not acquaint his friend with my name, nor where I was concealed, and used every morning and evening to wander alone round the place of my confinement, in hopes of seeing me, as I should walk abroad, and of speaking to me unobserved, which, after about a fortnight's attendance, he happened to meet with. In this sweet but dangerous converse, did we pass the minute, for to us it appeared no more, of our assignation. And now judge me, Edward, with your wonted candour, nor blame this foolish heart, if every tender, every fond sensation it had ever felt returned with double force. Remember that I had never loved another, and that I still loved him even when I thought him false. What must my transports be to find him true, When, in my turn, I told him the inhuman arts that had been practiced to betray me, and estrange our mutual confidence, his passions rose almost to madness, and he a thousand times exclaimed that I was still his wife, that our hearts were joined by heaven, and that no power on earth should ever part us more. Too eagerly I listened to his ravings, and suffered the enchantment of his voice to lull asleep my prudence and my reason. I felt as if there were but us alone of all our species existing in this world, and all other connection, obligation, or regard appeared to me then but metaphysical speculation. Our sad attention to each other's woes had so entirely engrossed our thoughts that night stole on us almost unperceived. Tears had quite dimmed my sight, and my weak, trembling limbs needed assistance to support my weight. I could not then refuse his kind, sustaining arm to help me on toward the mansion of my sorrows, the dungeon of my misery." While we were on our way, a sudden storm arose, and the clouds burst forth in horrid thunder and lightning. By the time we had come within sight of the back door, through which I had that evening stolen out, a violent shower came on, which obliged me to hasten my speed. I entreated him to leave me, but he held me fast by the arm till we came to the house, which he entered along with me. "'Here drop the curtain, Edward,' And let this first false step of my whole life Stand as a mark for the innocent and unwary to shun. Let them restrain the first encroachments of a favoured lover, Nor vainly fancy when once they yield the reins That they can after check the ardent courser's speed. End of letter 66, part 1